We're continuing on in the book of Acts, and this morning we'll look at Acts chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. This is Paul's third missionary journey. Now, when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kaz, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus. And we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. And this is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank You once again for Your Word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. How lost we would be without it. We thank You that Your Word also strengthens us. We thank You that it sanctifies us. That it gives us wisdom. We also thank You that it rebukes us and it challenges us and it exhorts us. Father, may You send Your Holy Spirit to speak to us this morning through Your Word. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. You may be seated. Sanctus replied, I am a Christian. The young man said nothing else as he stood before the Roman governor, his life hanging in the balance. His accusers pressed him again hoping to trip, trip him up or force him to recant. But once more he answered with the same short phrase, I am a Christian. It was the middle of the second century during the reign of the emperor Marcus Aurelius. Christianity was illegal and believers throughout the Roman Empire faced the threat of imprisonment, torture, or death. Persecution was especially intense in southern Europe where Sanctus, a deacon from Vienna, had been arrested and brought to trial. The young man was repeatedly told to renounce the faith he had professed, but his resolve was undeterred. 
I am a Christian. No matter what question he was asked, he always gave the same unchanging answer. According to the ancient church historian Eusebius, Sanctus girded himself against his accusers with such firmness that he would not even tell his name or the nation or city to which he belonged or whether he was bond or free, but answered in the Roman tongue to all their questions, I am a Christian. When at last it became obvious that he would say nothing else, he was condemned to severe torture and a public death in the amphitheater. On the day of his execution, he was forced to run the gauntlet, subjected to wild beasts, and fastened to a chair of burning iron. Throughout it all, his accusers kept trying to break him, convinced that his resistance would crack under the pain of torment. But, as Eusebius recounted, even thus he did not hear a word from Sanctus except the confession which he had uttered from the beginning. His dying words told of an undying commitment. His rallying cry remained consistent throughout his entire trial. I am a Christian. For Sanctus, his whole identity, including his name, citizenship, and social status was bound up in Jesus Christ. Hence, no better answer could have been given to the question he was asked. He was a Christian, and that designation defined everything about him. The same perspective was shared by countless others in the early church. It fueled their witness, strengthened their resolve, and confounded their opponents. When arrested, these courageous believers would confidently respond as Sanctus had, with a succinct assertion of their loyalty to Jesus Christ. As one historian explained about the early martyrs, they would reply to all questionings about them with the short but comprehensive answer, I am a Christian. Again and again, they caused no little perplexity to their judges by the pertinacity of which they adhered to this brief profession of faith. The question was repeated, Who are you? And they replied, I have already said that I am a Christian. And he who says this, thereby has named his country, his family, his profession, and all else besides. This morning, I want to ask you a very simple question, but it is a profound question. What is a Christian? If you have repented of your sin, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, and if you have confessed that He is Lord, then you are a Christian. But now that you are a Christian... What does it mean to live every day as a Christian? What will it mean tomorrow morning to live as a Christian and to live throughout the week as a Christian? Now, our text this morning provides at least four answers to that question. What does it mean to be a Christian? Number one, to be a Christian means to be a follower of Christ. Uh, the literal meaning of Christian, Christian, simply means a person who follows Christ. Um, if I were to say my soteriology, which is just a fancy term for my doctrine of salvation, if I were to say my soteriology is Augustinian, 
that means that I follow the theology of St. Augustine. Therefore, I'm Augustinian. So we use that term all the time. We might refer to ourselves as Chicagoans. Um, it means we are related to Chicago. So to be a Christian, very basically, means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Last week I mentioned that the Apostle Paul is on his way up to Jerusalem. And we also pointed out that there are many parallels between Paul's ascent to Jerusalem and Jesus' ascent to Jerusalem. Now, of course, there are differences, but the parallels are too close to be coincidental. Luke, the author of Acts, is intentionally showing us in Paul's ascent to Jerusalem that he is following in the footsteps of Jesus. He's a follower of Christ, in other words. Now, the question we want to ask, though, is why is Paul going to Jerusalem? Does he just like Jerusalem? Does he say, I have a little time off and it's great to holiday in, in Jerusalem? That would not be the answer. <laughs> Acts 20, 22 provides us with the answer. We looked at this last week. He told the elders um, who had come from Ephesus, and now, behold, I am going up to Jerusalem constrained by the Holy Spirit. He's going up to Jerusalem because he's constrained by the Holy Spirit to go up to Jerusalem. Um, another translation says he's going up to Jerusalem compelled by the Holy Spirit. Uh, the NIV has the most literal translation. It reads that he is bound by the Holy Spirit, or as my footnote says, bound in the Holy Spirit. Um, now, that the Greek word here is deo, and it literally means to bind. That's, that's the root word here. It means to bind. And the picture is of the Apostle Paul bound with ropes or chains or the Holy Spirit, if you will, and he is being led up to Jerusalem. He is being compelled by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. But I want to be real clear here. This binding, this compelling, this constraint is not a reluctant constraint. The Apostle Paul is saying, okay, that's where you want me to go. I'll go. No, this is a joyful, this is a willing constraints on the apostles' part. The Holy Spirit is making it very clear that He needs to go up to Jerusalem. And Paul is saying, let's go. In spite of knowing what's waiting for him there. Let's continue on verse 22. He says, and Now behold, I am going up to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city, that imprisonments and afflictions await me. So Paul knows that in every city, including Jerusalem, this is what's waiting for him. Imprisonments and affliction. And the response of the Apostle Paul is, well then, let's get a move on. <laughs> and if you think I'm kidding, back up to verse 16. For Paul had decided to set sail past Ephesus, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. 
So Paul really is in a hurry to get Jerusalem, even knowing that imprisonment and affliction are waiting for him there because he knows this is what God is calling him to do. He knows that this is where the Spirit is leading him. There is not a doubt in his mind. He has received his marching orders, so he's more than happy to say, then onward, let's go. And he's heading up to Jerusalem. Now, Paul going to Jerusalem because he's a Christian and he's willing to follow Christ wherever he leads. Does that describe you? When you say, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Christ, you're implying I will follow wherever he leads. Is that your attitude? Then let's go, regardless of what's waiting for us there. Number two, to be a Christian means to be a follower of Christ in spite of suffering. In verses 1-7, through we're provided with Paul's travel itinerary as he heads towards Jerusalem. Um, We're given a list of a number of places where he stops. And at one location, Tyre, um, they stopped for a week so that they could unload cargo. And Paul sought out the believers. And no doubt he wanted to worship with them. He wanted to fellowship with them. And he wanted to edify these believers however he could. And I'm guessing that most likely, knowing the Apostle Paul, that he preached well into the night. Maybe even the morning. Now, while he's there, uh, this is what verse 4 says in chapter 21. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? Through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Now, how do we reconcile that with chapter 20, verse 22, where he was compelled or bound by the Holy Spirit to go up to Jerusalem? Is the Spirit contradicting himself? I don't think so. I think what's happening here is that the Spirit is telling these believers a rough time awake Paul in Jerusalem. And when the Spirit revealed that, probably through some kind of prophecy like the one we're going to look at in a minute, they said, well, you shouldn't go, Paul. Paul says, no, I'm going. And he continues on in his travels up to Jerusalem. But on his way to Jerusalem, he makes another stop in verse 8. And this time he stops in Caesarea. And we're told that they came to Caesarea and they entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and they stayed with him. We saw Philip a little earlier in Acts 6. Philip was one of the seven deacons that was set aside to take care of of the widows in the church. And then we saw Philip a little later in Acts 8 where he was set aside um, to do mission work. And this is what we read in Acts 8 beginning at verse 4. Now those who were scattered because of persecution went about preaching the word. Philip, there's our Philip, went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord pay attention to what he said. 
because Philip, or excuse me, the crowd paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. So Philip was a deacon. Now he's a missionary. He's specifically called in our passage an evangelist. And he is one person that God did extraordinary works through. A little later in that same chapter, Philip is led by the Spirit to talk to uh, an Ethiopian eunuch who's going through Isaiah 53. And he's asking questions about the passage. And uh, Philip explains the passage. And then in verse 40 of Acts 8, we're told, But Philip found himself at Azotaz, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns, and he came to Caesarea. And that's where he is in Acts 20. But now we need to move the clock ahead some 20 years. So some 20 years later, Philip is still in Caesarea ministering. But now the Apostle Paul has a layover in Caesarea on his way to Jerusalem, and Philip provides Paul with dinner and lodging. Now, wouldn't it have been wonderful to have been a guest around the dinner table? As Philip and Paul shared missionary stories, Philip talked about, you're never going to guess when I first went into missions what God did. And then about the time he led me to this Ethiopian eunuch, and then Paul would say, well, you're not going to guess what happened back. And it's on and on they would go, and they would have a great time of fellowship. And those really are the best stories, aren't they? Talking about how God has worked in our lives, how God has ministered to us. Verse 9 says, uh, He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Um, that's all that's said about his daughters. Uh, but we know from church history that at least three of those daughters lived to be of old age, and they gave... Uh, much insight about early Christianity to some other historians. So, um, these daughters provide a great link between the apostolic age and the early church, which is kind of fascinating. Um, passage goes on and it says, While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands with it. Kind of like an Old Testament prophet here. Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. He's going to be bound. This is our Greek word, deo. Once again, you're going to be bound, the prophet Abigus says to all the believers there. But you know what? Paul was already bound. Paul was bound by something stronger than a belt or ropes or chains. He was bound by the Holy Spirit who gave him clear direction. Now, as we've seen, Paul already knew what was waiting for him in Jerusalem. He already knew that. The Holy Spirit says, in every city, this is what awaits me. Prisonment and affliction. So as he was going up to Jerusalem, he knew what was there. It wasn't a surprise. And then when he had this layover in Tyre, 
the Holy Spirit once again somehow most likely revealed that terrible affliction awaits you in Jerusalem. And they said, don't go. And now, Abigail gives this prophecy. And really, the only thing it provided for the Apostle Paul was a few extra details. He knew what was waiting. All Abigail really did was give him a couple other details. The Jews are going to bind you and they're going to turn you over to the Gentiles. Okay, there's, there's the specifics of what's going to happen. Paul's unfazed. There's nothing new to the Apostle Paul. Furthermore, he could care less. Why? Because he's a Christian. He's a Christian. Part and parcel of being a Christian is, is suffering. Love it. We need to understand it, it's inescapable. Paul says it, it's bound up with our very salvation. In Philippians 1.29, Paul says, talking to believers, for it has been granted to you, graciously granted to you, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for Him. If you're a Christian, it's because it's been granted to you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're a Christian, not only has it been granted to you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but it has been granted to you to suffer for Christ. You say, wow, that sounds like a gift. It is. Because of what it brings. Turning ahead to Philippians 3.10 and excuse me because I've memorized this in other versions, but he says, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings. The fellowship of sharing in His sufferings. There is a closeness with Christ, a fellowship with Christ that can only come about through suffering with and for Christ. Which is why Paul says, I want it. I want it. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of His resurrection. And I want to know the fellowship of sharing with Him through my sufferings. So Paul is a Christian. I don't think he was a masochist. So it wasn't, oh boy, I get to be flogged. I get to be whipped. It's not that. It's, but I do enjoy the privilege of bearing in my body the marks of Jesus Christ. Because this is what's necessary if the church is to continue on. In Colossians 1.24, Paul said, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body that is the church. He's filling up what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ. And of course, we have to be very careful here. What's lacking in the afflictions of Christ doesn't have anything to do with providing redemption. That suffering is complete. What Paul is saying here, if the church is going to continue to grow and it will grow, then believers like myself have to fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. So Paul was very cognizant that he is continuing on with the afflictions of Christ. 
They afflicted Christ. They're going to afflict me. And that's what's necessary for the kingdom to be built. For the glory of God to go forth. For the church to be established. We have to suffer. And Paul wants to do it. He's willing to do it. Are we willing to do it? Are we willing to follow Christ knowing that suffering's awaiting us? We have to persevere. William Wilberforce, as many of you know, I, I hope, I'll put an end to the slave trade in Britain. And he worked tirelessly for decades because he saw that as the calling of God on his life. He said, really, God has given me two callings. One, as a politician working in Parliament, was to abolish the slave trade in Britain, putting an end to slavery. And the other one was to bring about manners. And what he saw by manners, he meant was morality. So he wanted to bring about greater morality in Britain. And he worked tirelessly. He was one of these guys, the more you would oppose him, the stronger he would come back. One of his adversaries said about him, It is necessary to watch him as he is blessed with a very sufficient quantity of that enthusiastic spirit, which so far from yielding that it grows more vigorous from blows. In other words, knock him down and he gets up stronger. One pastor said, There are not many people like that in America today. Most people who get knocked down for righteousness' sake feel sorry for themselves. And then they say, where is God? And then they ask, and who can I sue to make up for the difference? There really aren't many people with a William Wilberforce kind of tenacity. With an Apostle Paul kind of persistence. He says, I'm going to go on because I'm a Christian. And this is what it means to be a Christian. To follow Christ regardless of the suffering. Number three, to be a Christian means to follow Christ in spite of opposition. Going back to Acts 21. This is what we read in verse 12 after Abigail gave the prophecy. When we heard this, And notice that Luke is including himself because he's right there with them. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. (laughs) Paul, don't go up to Jerusalem. Now, let me ask you this question. Why would they tell Paul not to go up to Jerusalem? They had been together for a while. No doubt, Paul had said, I'm bound by the Holy Spirit to go up to Jerusalem. That's where I'm going. This is just another layover on the way up to Jerusalem. So surely he relayed that. So when this prophecy comes, why do they say, oh no, suffering's awaiting you. Don't go, Paul. Why do they do that? You know why? Because at this moment, They love Paul more than they do the gospel of Jesus Christ or God. In this moment, they do. Their their emotions were stirred up because of this prophecy. They lost perspective. And they love Paul. They don't want anything to happen to Paul. Who, Who would, right? We don't want anything to happen to Paul. 
But they're not helping Paul. Turn back to Matthew 16. And I think this is another one of these places where we have very close parallel with Jesus as He's going up to Jerusalem. In Matthew 16, Peter gave his great confession um, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then in Acts, or excuse me, Matthew 16.21, we read, From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go up to Jerusalem. Jesus also bound by the Holy Spirit to go up to Jerusalem and suffer many things, just like Paul, from the elders, the chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And, and Peter hears this, and he, and he has a visceral reaction, and, and he, he panics. <laughs> and he has the audacity to take Jesus aside. Can you picture it? Uh, Jesus, Sovereign Lord, Creator of the universe, come here. <laughs> Takes Peter aside. Rebukes him. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Notice three observations real quick. Satan is using one of Jesus' closest friends. Peter was in the inner circle, remember? When Jesus would go off and he just wanted his closest friends, remember it was the three disciples, Peter, James, and John. Pete, Jim, and John, if you want to make it real simple. Peter was one of his closest friends. Yet he was being used by Satan. Peter didn't know it. Peter was just thinking, I love Jesus. I don't want anything to happen to him. But as Jesus went on to say, you're a hindrance to me. Peter, this, this is not helping this is not helping. I'm doing what God is calling me to do and you're, you're hindering me. I'm called to go up to Jerusalem and you're standing between me and Jerusalem, which means you're getting in the way of God's will. You're in the way. And here's what we have to recognize. Sometimes our closest family members and friends will be the hindrance God uses. Remember Jody went through that terrible time. He lost just about everything he owned. All of his children... And his wife said, curse God and die. Job could have said, honey, this isn't helping. <laughs> Joseph's son, and I, I, could, I wish I could remember the details, but he was uh, a minister in Romania when it was under communism. And they had arrested him. They were coming into his home. They were taking apart his library one by one. That will break the heart of any pastor. Taking away all his books. Um, they were going to carry him off to imprisonment, and martyrdom really was a possibility at that time. He ended up writing a dissertation about martyrdom, so it really was a possibility. And his, he told his wife about this, and his wife said, well, you said if this is what God has called me to do, then I need to lay down my life and die. So, honey, you need to do what God's calling you to do. Dad is a godly woman. Dad is a godly woman because her faith right in that midst was being tested and she showed that she loved God more than her husband and she was an encouragement to him. That's what God is calling you to do. 
then hold your head up high, you will be richly rewarded. These friends right here are not helping Paul. Notice what he says. What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. This isn't helping, friends. This isn't helping. And I think there's a warning here. I think we have to be very careful. And, and this might be a tough one. Imagine you're maybe 18, 19-year-old, 20-year-old son or daughter goes off to some kind of missions conference. And imagine they, they come back and they say, Mom, Dad, the conference was awesome. I, I felt like God spoke to me clearly. He's calling me to missions. I think He wants me to go to Syria. I think he's calling me to go to North Korea. What would your response be? That's dangerous. <laughs> Are you really sure you heard from God? <laughs> Let's pray about this together as a family. Or would it be you're blessing my heart? willing to do whatever God wants you to do. However this works out, I just want you to know that I'm just so proud of you that you're willing to do whatever God's calling you to do. This is what I've prayed for my whole life. That you would just be a Christian. A follower of Christ. Regardless of the suffering. Regardless of the opposition. So not only does Paul have physical suffering, but the emotions of these people... One other point, to be a Christian means to follow Christ in spite of life itself. What does Paul say? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Beloved, I'm ready to die even if this is what He calls me to do. Now, some of you uh, older folks with a little snow on the roof uh, may remember the comedian Jack Benny. Do a few of you remember Jack Benny? I see a, I, I see a couple of nods. And he, he would play different characters, and, and often he would play you know, a terrible musician. And he also uh, played a very miserly guy who held on tightly to his money. And there was one famous skit that many of you probably remember. On, on one occasion, a, a thief came up to Jack Benny, put a, put a gun in his back, and he said, your money or your life. And there was a pause for a couple seconds. And, and, and the thief said, buddy, I said your money or your life. And Jack Benny said, I know, I'm thinking it over. Now, why is that funny? I, I know you're not supposed to analyze jokes because you, you ruin it. You know, it's like when you tell a joke and someone says, I don't get it, explain it to me. You're like, if I have to explain it to you, really. It, it really ruins it. But, but why, why is that funny? We all know why that's funny. Because if you think about it, it's funny because the truth is there is nothing more important and more precious to us than our lives. Unless you're a Christian. You're a Christian, you can say with the psalmist, the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. 
And the Apostle Paul could genuinely say, to live is Christ, therefore to die is gain. Because if I go on living, I minister on His behalf and I build His church and His kingdom and His reputation. But if I die, then I go and I'm ushered into His presence. For Paul, it was a win-win situation. Paul said, I can't lose. Heads, I go on living and I minister for Christ and I advance His glory. Tails, I die and I get to be in His presence. Now, if I have to choose between the two, I'd rather die, quite honestly, and, and go to His presence. But it's up to Him because I'm just doing what He's calling me to do. And then I love how it ends. And since He would not be persuaded, how could He be? We seek and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Let the will of the Lord be done. You know, that could be said in two different ways. We could understand that. Then it's, okay, well, there's nothing we can do. Then let's just make a reluctant concession and say, let the will of the Lord be done. Or, on the other hand, it could be joyful submission. Let the will of the Lord be done. I want to do what He's calling me to do. I told this story a week and a half ago during our Wednesday Bible study, but I want to tell it again because I love this story. It's actually from John Newton, uh, the slave trader who became a pastor following his conversion and wrote uh, Amazing Grace, among other hymns. He said, If two angels were to receive at the same moment a commission from God, one to go down and rule the earth's grandest empire, and the other to go and sweep the streets of the ugliest, dirtiest village, it would be a matter of entire indifference to each which service fell to his lot. The post of ruler or the post of scavenger, cleaning streets. For the joy of the angels lies only in obedience to God's will. That's the Apostle Paul. I just want to do what you're calling me. You just tell me what you want me to do. I'll clean the toilets. I'll preach the sermons. Whatever you want me to do. Because what makes me happy is to carry out your will. And Paul would say, as Jesus said, my, my need to my drink is to do the will of my Father in heaven. And as Jesus said at the end of his life, he said, I've finished the work that the Father gave me to do. Paul just wanted to be able to say at the end of his life, I have finished the work that the Lord gave me to do. And the only way to understand the Apostle Paul in his life is to understand that he was a Christian. Which meant that he would follow Christ in spite of suffering, in spite of opposition, even in spite of life itself. Because his life was bound up with the life of Jesus Christ. And nothing would separate him from that. So he could live fearlessly regardless of what was facing him in his missionary journey. May we too live the life of faithful Christians. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you again for the example of the Apostle Paul and how he challenges us. And Father, forgive us for when we waver from walking in obedience to your commands, 
Father, fill us with Your Spirit. Strengthen us so that it really is our resolve and our heart's desire to follow wherever You lead, regardless of what is waiting for us. Father, may we really be able to say from the heart, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing His sufferings, even becoming like Him in His death as a martyr, if that's what You call me to do. Because my heart's desire more than anything else is to bring glory to Your name. Father, give us such hearts. For Jesus' sake. Amen.